You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Uh, three guests this week, and the uh, topic of this podcast is um, is reporting from inside the bubble. And I have three reporters who are in uh, bubble environments for three different sports. Holly Rowe really needs no introduction for this uh, uh, audience. She's been on this podcast uh, a number of times, uh, worked for ESPN for more than two decades. She's been a lead reporter on college football, men's college basketball, the women's Final Four, women's college World Series, uh, beach volleyball and uh, the WNBA, which is the reason she's on this podcast as she talks to us from Bradenton about her experiences being in the WNBA bubble right now. Holly's always great to talk to, and that was uh, is just fascinating in terms of uh, what she's going through and uh, how the WNBA setup is. So she starts the podcast off, followed by Tanya Ganguly the fine Lakers beat writer for the Los Angeles Times. And we talk about her experiences so far in the NBA bubble in Orlando, what the opening weeks were like, uh, what she hopes to report on at the, uh, in the bubble environment, and, uh, and stories on social activism, which are obviously going to be a massive part of all of these leagues, but particularly the NBA. And then we finish up with Stefano Fusaro, national correspondent for ESPN, uh, usually based in uh, Houston for ESPN, but uh, he is in Orlando at the MLS bubble, providing reports in English and Spanish for ESPN, ESPN Deportes, and ESPN FC. He's on their broadcasts. Um, and again, another another reporter who has just an amazingly interesting assignment in terms of uh, navigating everything that's going on with the MLS's back tournament, which has been pretty exciting, actually, so far to watch. So three great guests. I really enjoy this podcast. Holly Road to start, Tanya Ganguly next, followed by Stefano Fusaro, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Holly Rowe needs a little introduction. She's been a guest on this podcast multiple times. And if you watch ESPN, you certainly know who she is. She's pretty much done every sport for that network over the last couple decades. Lead reporting on college football, men's college basketball, women's Final Four, women's college World Series, beach volleyball, and the WNBA, which is the reason we are talking to her today. And she is... Right now, in her room in Bradenton, Florida, in the bubble, and Holly Rowe joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Holly, write SOS and if, if you need anything, or send some smoke if you need some okay, help. Okay, so what a unique way that we are living in 2020. I, I've had these moments of um, being super excited because we get to start covering games on Saturday, and it's going to be Sabrina Ionesco's debut. Uh, first time Brianna Stewart's back on the court for after an Achilles tear in the WNBA. Sue Bird's back. Diana Taurasi's back. And then I have these moments where I'm trapped in my hotel room going, what have I done? What is, what is happening here? What, what have I decided to do with my life? I can imagine. All right, so let's... Because I think people are going to be fascinated sort of with the logistics of this. Can you... Um, so let's start here. How did you, one, how did you get the assignment, slash two, did you volunteer for the assignment? 
I did volunteer for the assignment. You know, as soon as we knew that there was going to be a safe site and, and how the season would unfold, you know, I let my bosses know, hey, I'm willing to go. I'm, I'm ready to go. I just bought a home in Florida, so I literally live 40 minutes away from here. So it would be easy logistically if they wanted me to go. So I definitely raised my hand. I, I think you know me well enough. You know I love the WNBA. It is a passion project. I have been doing something in this league since the day it started, whether it's pulling cable or being a stage manager or being an announcer. So um, I'm passionate about it. I thought it was our best opportunity to return to sports. I'm getting very worried about college football and my college football assignments. And so, yeah, I raised my hand and I'm excited to be here, but um, there's a lot that comes with it. All right. So logistically, can you describe for listeners um, what that the WNBA lets gives you permission and ESPN works out that end. So can you describe for listeners your trip to Bradenton and just the first day there? What what happens when you arrive? Right. So it, it was kind of fascinating because I've been kind of on standby, like in my mind, I knew that maybe I would be coming. So, you know, I'm kind of staying ready, keep going on all the Zoom calls for all the teams, you know, keeping my eye on everything. But at noon on last Wednesday, I got a phone call that said, you're in. Can you report tonight? And so even though I thought I was on standby, having to pack um, for who knows how long, it could be three weeks, it could be three months, uh, get your life in order and report to work that night, it was a mad scramble. Like I was freaking out. Um, packed up my, I had a rental car, packed up my rental car and drove over to report to a hotel just off-site, not in the bubble, but off-site of the bubble, where I had to quarantine in my room for four days. And then they would have a tester come to my room every night and do an, a nasal swab and an oral swab for my COVID-19 testing. And it was really fascinating because the first two days you're like, oh, I can just hang out. I'm in a room, but no big deal, spa day, you know, whatever. And then day three, I hit the wall and I'm like, I just have to walk outside. You know, like it's fascinating how your brain works. But four days in that hotel. And then when I passed those four COVID tests, then I was able to come into the IMG campus, which is what the bubble is considered. We're calling it the WNBA bubble is the wobble. And so I am now in the IMG hotel that is on campus where most many of the players are staying. The referees are here. The WNBA people are here. Many players are right across the street in what's called the villas or the lodge, which are other housing accommodations that are more like apartments. So I've been in this hotel room now for this is my third day, and I got sprung this morning because I passed on the COVID test. So uh, it's been really interesting. I walked downstairs to the lobby just now just to see some humanity, and one of the first people I saw was Tamika Catching, the great from in- the Indiana Fever. And she's known for her hugs. And we just stood there like six feet apart in the hotel lobby and pretended to hug like, oh, like, hi, oh, squeeze you from six feet away. So it was hilarious. <laughs> all right. A couple of things from all that stuff. What for 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 people who have not taken a COVID-19 test, what was that experience like for you? Um, I, I've just been through cancer for the last four years. So my body has been poked and prodded beyond belief. So for me, it, it's, it's literally no big deal. <laughs> so I. I have seen people like, you know, crying or, you know, their tears come out because they tickle your nostrils. So they basically take the swab and kind of run it around the inside of your nostrils. This is not the invasive one that goes clear up into the back of your nose. And then the oral swab is like the strep, you guys probably had a strep test where they stick a swab, a big long swab, clear back in the back of your throat to where it kind of makes you gag almost. 
and and swipe back there. So that's that's the testing. I personally think it's no big deal because, you know, I've been through a lot worse the last few years. But I know that some people really dread it and are like anxious about anything medical. So it's been kind of funny. Cheryl Reeve, I heard her say, the Minnesota Lynx coach, I heard her say on her podcast um, that she had brought sedatives just in case the testing was too bad for her. So I, I think she's doing okay, though. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty interesting. Such an amazing coach. He's been through a lot of pressure and tension, but this could be something that uh, that that really gets to her. It's just sort of interesting how all of us as humans, sort of what bothers us and uh, understandably and what doesn't. Um, you mentioned um, you're uh, going through cancer. That's obviously something that I've written about um, with you many times. And um, I think everybody, one, is certainly happy that you've been in remission and to really appreciate your honesty here. But Holly, the, the reality is, and I, I don't want to presume this, but I imagine this was the case. You must have spoken to your doctors about the prospect of going inside a quarantine. Um, you know, I remember talking to you about the joint pain that you had and the muscle fatigue that you had when you were going through your treatment. What did your doctor say just about the prospect of putting yourself in this um, position. Again, I realize WNBA protocols, they're going to be as safe as possible. But at the end of the day, you, you are putting yourself with many, many people um, as opposed to just, uh, you know, staying close to home and, and sort of controlling who you see and who you don't. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I think you know me well enough to know that I'm a crazy woman. And as soon as they said I could go back to work, I'm like, I'm all in. Yes. You know, like it never even crossed my mind to be scared for my own health, which is probably bad. But the WNBA, of course, you know, they're, they're awesome. They had my back and they said, we have to get a letter from your oncologist that this is going to be okay and not present any further challenges. So I spoke to my oncologist and he gave me a letter of approval. And um, then I went and got a physical just to make sure like I'm in good shape and, you know, like I could, I could handle this and that went well. But, you know, it is fascinating when you think about, am I will, what am I willing to risk to do the things that I love? And it's so fascinating to me. Like, it, it was never any question that I was going to do this. I didn't, I wasn't worried. Um, part of that stems from, I think I've already had COVID. So I got very sick in January. You know, I, I'm living part-time in New York, and I was flying out of New York, you know, all through December, January, February, three and four times a week. So I'm, I'm pretty certain I've already had COVID. Um, I got tested. I was negative for the flu, but I was as sick as I've ever been. So that that gave me a little bit of, um, I don't know, peace of mind. Like, I think I've had this. I think I've been through it. And then I went and visited my friend Doris Burke this summer for uh, almost seven days. And she's had COVID. You know, we were exposed to her. No issues there whatsoever, me and my son. So I don't know. I just kind of feel like I'm in a good place and I, and I am willing to risk things to do what I love and to support these women in this. You know, I, I, I want to support the WNBA women. I want to tell their story. They are pressing through this horrible time in, in our society with everything that's going on. And, and I feel an obligation and a sense of duty to be here to support them and tell their stories as they go through it, too. One of the uh, questions that I was going to ask you was, have you talked to your NBA counterparts about their experience? And I know you're very, very close with Doris. Um, and so have you spoken to her about the NBA's quarantine in Orlando and just maybe, uh, at least from your perspective, your your experience in the bubble, which she's obviously going to experience in a different kind of bubble? 
Yes, we have texted about it. Um, you know, since I've been in quarantine, she's texted me and said, you know, what, what do you wish you'd taken? What are you missing? What did you take that you're happy that you have? I think she's reporting to the NBA um, Thursday, uh, maybe tomorrow. So, yes, we've definitely, you know, passed notes. And then I have another friend, uh, Christina Mixon, who runs Mixon Digital, who if you ever see any of the draft boards that are like digital, cool, virtual things, you know, the virtual scoreboards, anything to do digitally with the NBA, she runs all that and she's in the NBA bubble. And so I've been kind of picking her brain about like, how are you living? How are you not going crazy? You know, that kind of stuff. Do you, Holly, do you know at this point, um, what kind of, when, when you are sort of cleared from your room, um, what kind of access will you have on a, on a, one, on a day-to-day basis? And then sort of two, what kind of access will you have as, uh, in any kind of role, reporting role? That's a great question. I have a meeting set up with the WNBA that we're going to go over that because, listen, this is very unusual in that it's very intimate. Like, I'm sitting here in my room right now, and I can look out at the pool. Like, I can see a team right this very second being trammed over to practice. Um, I can see players in the pool doing workouts with their athletic trainers. And so just by nature of where I'm kind of being sequestered, I can see things that I normally wouldn't see as a media member. Um, I want to respect that space and respect those boundaries. So I I want to be very careful. And in this meeting, you know, I think what I want to say is give me some boundaries because I'm not a girl that, you know, does well with boundaries. You know, like I'm all over the place. I'm like, hey, hi, let's do this. So please help me um, do a good job here and have good boundaries. But, um, you know, you see everything. You can't unsee what you're seeing. So it's very fascinating. But what I'm hoping I can do is I am still getting on all the team. You know, the teams have Zoom calls and media availability every day. I'm still getting on those to ask questions that I have of the players so that if I'm in the elevator, if I'm in the hotel lobby, I am not using those moments to talk to the players. I want to respect their in-work, out-of-work space. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Um, okay, we, we, as comfortable as you are um, so far in terms of your observation and or even small conversations with players, um, what have they said about the, the sort of environment and the experience so far? So it's very interesting. That, you know, I, I'm sure you saw kind of famously the first couple of days, some of the players had put out social media posts where they were upset with the laundry room or that there were bugs in their room and – and I did some reporting then, and one of the players I talked to was Diamond DeShields, and she's like, look, I don't want to be somebody complaining, but I'm also like, if we're going to be here for three months, we want our life to go well. So that her, her situation was she's vegan, and they kept delivering food to her each day that had meat in it. So, you know, just little things like that in the beginning, but those have all gotten ironed out, and every single player I've talked to since then is very happy with the situation. Now, listen there's not a ton to do. You can go outside to the pool. You can ride your bike. You can golf. We're going to do it. There's a yoga session tomorrow morning at the hotel. You know, like the WNBA is trying to set up these activities so people don't, you know, go stir crazy. But part of this is the players have now been here for two weeks without playing games. You know, they're just practicing. I think once games start and the competition and the season actually tips off, I think nobody's going to be bored. You know what I mean? You're going to be in the grind and in the excitement of competition and it's going to get going. So that starts on Saturday. Um, but people are pretty happy. Like I'm, I'm teasing some of the players like, like Neka Ogumake is a fantastic cook. 
Like I could imagine her opening her own restaurant at some point. Um, Alicia Clark from the Seattle Storm, who is one of the great unheralded players in the WNBA, that I think is just absolutely the backbone of that Seattle team that never gets any credit. She is like a, a world-class chef. Both of her parents were chefs. So I'm teasing their, those players like, hey, can we have a cook-off or can I come over for dinner? You know, like, you know, you want this to be a, a, a good, fun space where people can interact and do things, but, you know, well, having boundaries too. But I think the players are pretty happy at this point. Or I should say, as happy as they can be, you know, kind of stuck in one place for this long other time. I think one of the it seems like one of the differences between the NBA bubble right now and the WNBA bubble is that um, uh, more family members inside the WNBA bubble. Have you seen partners? Have you seen any kind of family? What's uh, or are most players sort of solo and so on their own? No, that's something really special that the WNBA has done, so that players who had five years or more of service were allowed to bring a guest. And so it's just kind of cool. Um, I'm walking out to breakfast this morning and I see Sue Bird and I see this pink hair and I'm like, oh my gosh, so Megan Rapino sitting out there. So she's here with Sue Bird, which is really cool. If you think about, you know, she's busy. She's maybe the busiest woman on the planet right now with her activism and her company, Mendico, and all of her businesses she's doing. Um, but she's here supporting Sue and her return to the WNBA, which I think is just really special. Uh, Candace Parker has her 11-year-old daughter here with her. Um, they're doing homework and doing TikTok dances. And then there's lots of little ones. That I would say there's between five and eight players that have children here. Um, you know, some of them are single moms. Some of them are married. Uh, some of them have partners. And, and so it's really interesting to see how everyone's dealing with having their kids here all the time. I talked with uh, Dierica Hamby from Las Vegas yesterday. And she's got a little girl named Amaya. And if you guys want to just make a smile on your face every single day, go follow Dierica Hamby. Her little girl is literally the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life. And, you know, they're doing daily TikToks. Um, Amaya designed her shoes that she's wearing. So she will have shoes on her feet playing in the WNBA that her little girl designed all of the drawings on. Um, so it's really, it's really precious. And I want to just give a big shout out to these women because any working mothers out there, you know what a challenge that is. Now, add in that you're trying to be a world-class athlete and basketball player in a pandemic, living through this bubble in a moment of unrest in our country, and you're parenting nonstop at that same time. So I just, these women amaze me, constantly amaze me. Mm, I appreciate that's uh, That's very cool. I appreciate that. Don't, uh, Lord help anybody who plays uh, uh, Bird and Rapino in a two-on-two in soccer, something like that. That's not going to go well for... <laughs> For the opposing there is team. a soccer field right out my window here. I hope they. I hope I get to see Megan out there training. That would be so cool. Yeah, at least I mean, uh, you know, she's going to score on you. But go in there and get the experience of what it's like uh, to be a goalie, and you know, having a penalty shot against Megan Rapinoe would be like a once in a lifetime thing to see. Uh, to see how that works. Um, that would be funny. All right, Holly, yeah, one of the things, Holly. Um, that um, in talking to um, Ryan Rucco, Rebecca Lobo, Michael Schiffman, who uh, for the audience purposes here is the sort of the basketball point person at ESPN, um, it's very interesting what's going to happen in terms of the games. The um, games are being called back in Bristol um, at a studio. Uh, Rebecca, um, Ryan Rucco, Pam Ward, Lachina Robinson, they're going to have extra monitors in the studio because obviously they can't see the court. But everybody to a person, Holly, talked about just how important you will be for them because you are their eyes. And 
not even sort of what you might tell us on television, which will be a lot, but you will be in constant contact with the broadcast to let people know what's going on. So I know you have years of experience as a as a reporter on site, but this is going to be unlike, I would think, anything you've ever covered before. One, you're the only reporter in the arena, and two, your your team your teammates can't see anything. They're they're looking off monitors. So I just sort of take your free form thoughts there on what what will be just un, a game broadcast unlike you've ever been a part of. Yeah, I actually had a long phone conversation with Rebecca Lobo last night, um, and Latrina Robinson and I have been texting back and forth. Like, I'm I'm a little anxious about stuff. Here's why: in a broadcast, you know, usually Ryan and Rebecca are sitting right across the court from me, and when I can add, I will raise my hand and we make eye contact. And one of my proudest moments as a broadcaster was a story that I did. Like, I could I raised my hand. Ryan saw me. Without even knowing, he could tell from the look on my face what story I was going to do. So he tossed it to me with the appropriate toss. I do the story, and I I toss it back to him, and I kind of wiggle my finger like, oh, crap, I forgot. And he he intuits what I had forgotten and finishes that on the end of the story, and then Rebecca adds. And I'm like, that's the coolest thing I've ever done, where we know each other so well. You know, we can literally finish each other's sentences. So that's going to be really difficult to have that chemistry when we're not together and making eye contact and making, you know, hand gestures and having that intimate chemistry. So I feel anxious about that, but I have told Rebecca, like you guys text me, you know, cause they're going to be on the air speaking, but if they have questions like why did so-and-so just go out and they can't see the bench or know, you know, she's getting her ankle rewrapped or like, I'm going to be texting them information as well as then hitting the producer in my talk back on my microphone saying, hey, let the camera guys know, shoot the bench, you know, because we're going to have to really orchestrate together to visually tell these stories. It's going to be very interesting. Has the WNBA um, given you any kind of guidelines yet as opposed to the, the, the logistics of you interviewing people in-game, whether it's uh, uh, social distancing uh, where you can physically sit for games, whether you'll be able to move around the court. Do you know any of that stuff yet? I do know that I'm going to be on one baseline. And I don't know if you have seen the the video of the WNBA space, but it's fairly small. You know, it's a court, and then there's not a lot of room to the sides and to the end zone. There are some seats, kind of bleacher seats, up off the court where people can be, you know, the children of players can come and watch the games. Um, but... I don't know how the interview stuff's going to work. And so I, I've got to work out that with the league and I put a request into them that I could have a walkthrough that we can go over on Friday and do a complete dress rehearsal with the people who are running the scorers table with the PA, with the music, because one of the things I don't know, you know, I know there's been a lot made of our people piping in crowd noise. Um, and, and I'm like, I, I think that we would do a disservice to fans to pump in crowd music because we want to document the game. Like documenting the game in this moment is documenting how weird it is without fans and documenting that you can hear, you know, a coach yelling out a play or a, or a player calling out a screen that we can hear it in a way we've never heard it before. So I am hoping that we can pick up some of that Um like, this is real life. This is what sports in 2020 is like. Let's not, oh, this is so cute. I see a player, 
um, going down the street right now in a golf cart with her little baby on her lap. That's so cute. Sorry, I got distracted there. But, but, you know, this moment in time is so unique. Why are we trying to pretend it's something that it's not? Why, why hide it with the fake crowd noise? So um, we, we are going to be, you know, just basketball. And it's going to be cool because you can hear the sounds of the game. You know, the, I heard the squeak of sneakers for the first time on one of these Zoom meetings. And I was like, oh, my God, the sneaker squeaks. I just want to cry right now, you know. Like, let's bring that to fans. That's what we're missing. So I'll, I'll walk through all that, figure all that out with the league on Friday. Holly, where does, uh, where's your concern level? When it comes to um, health down there, are you? Where would you put your concern level in terms of, um, in terms of getting COVID nineteen? Let's just be blunt. Um, I'll, I think it's low, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, obviously we're in Florida, and I was at my home in Florida before this, and the way things are trending in Florida and some of these other states, I kind of feel like this is the safest place to be because people are being tested. People are religious about wearing their masks here. Like every single person that I have seen or spoken to in the hotel, we have done so through masks and six feet apart. So um, I, I do feel safe. And I think I get tested daily. We are all getting tested daily down here. And I just feel like this is a safe space and the way the WNBA doing it is very well thought out and well planned out. Now, will there be hiccups? Potentially. But I do feel safe. Is it your intention right now to stay throughout, to stay through the finals? That I don't know. I think my boss told me that it's pretty expensive for me to be staying here um, for three months, you know, because the cost of the hotel, the cost of testing, the cost of all of that. So I don't know. We'll have to talk that through. But after going through the onboarding quarantine process, you know, where it's basically seven days in a hotel room, I would be reluctant to leave if I don't have to. Because it, it's hard. That is very hard to be by yourself that long and not be able to go out, outside. So I, I would love to be here for the long haul. You know, that's a conversation I'll obviously have with my bosses. But some of that is a, a budget question also. So, um, you know, I'm hopeful that, that that's not a concern and that I could stay here and be here through the playoffs. We have two more for you. One, do you think that because you're at um, the stage of your life that you're at, you have adult children, um, that the, the the commitment for something like this as a reporter, like you said, potentially three months would be different as opposed to, let's say, you know, you have a, a five-year-old or, 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 you know, three seven-year-olds or something like that. I'm wondering, uh, because it's, you're in an interesting position compared to some of the NBA uh, bubble reporters that I know who are leaving family. Um, they did, they opted, opted to make that decision um you know it feels like for you at least and i don't want to make presumptions but it's a good moment in your life where you could sort of throw yourself into this because um you know you, you don't have a small kid at home that like you once did right it, you're absolutely right because my son just turned 25 and so i'm able to leave home and not worry um now, now listen i'm always worrying about him but it's like you you know it would be hard for you and your wife with twins to go on an assignment like this, it would be almost impossible, <laughs> That's right? Correct. Can you yeah, imagine? It's, it would be. In it's a. An, it would be a. Yeah. <laughs> The odds of that happening, Holly, are the same as me being the president of Russia. Yeah, that's never happening right now. Correct. <laughs> that's not happening. But because my son is older, number one, and because we have just been thrown together for four months every day through the whole quarantine stay-at-home period, you know, like I kind of felt like it was time to go. It, you know, he, I think, was 
ready for his mother to be gone and bugging him every single day. And I was kind of ready to be gone and be like, okay, I'm going to do my own thing and not have to watch Star Wars seven hours a day, you know, whatever. So, uh, no, it was at a good time. But I've been really grateful for that time with my adult son. I've talked to a lot of parents around the country, like how fun it was for us to be, you know, quarantined at home and trapped at home with our adult children. That will never happen again. So I, I enjoyed and loved every second of that. But now I am ready to get back to work is um, I find great joy in my work. And I, I would be dishonest if I didn't say some days I have thought, what are we doing? Like, why are we even trying to play these games? And are we crazy as a country to try to be forcing the NBA and the WNBA back And when we're in the midst of all of this? And the thing I just keep coming back to is life goes on. Like, if we stop living and stop doing the things that make us happy, we will just die a little slow death every single day. And that's kind of, you know, how I felt when I was going through cancer of, um, I don't feel good today, but I have to go out and do something and be alive. And I just kind of feel like maybe that's the place I have to live in right now through all this pandemic of, I have to do the things every day that make me happy and bring me joy or else what's the point of living, right? So, Maybe we're crazy for coming back to basketball. Maybe we're crazy for all this stuff. But we have to live, Richard. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe you need to talk me down. But um, I don't think we're crazy. I think people's lives have to go on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on it. It's, it's a very sort of a, you know, my, my, my thoughts on this are not linear. Uh, lives do have to go on. And I actually think sports plays a really important role in just the normalcy of life. Um, where I've always stood, and again, doesn't mean I'm right or anything, it's just a singular opinion, is I, I'm, I'm very, I shouldn't say, I'm not very comfortable with anything, but, but I am comfortable and I, I, and I support the pros trying to play. Um, these are adults. It's their livelihood. They're making a decision and they're compensated for it. And at a certain point, you have to hope that the leagues put the right health protocols in place for this to happen. Obviously, there's a larger conversation to have. How essential are sports? Should we be even doing sports in this climate? I get that. And I think reasonable people can have an honest conversation about that. The one place, Holly, and you're part of this, that really truly bothers me is colleges and college football and college basketball, where, where in my opinion, um, I don't consider a scholarship and room and board payment. Uh, um but yet they are producing revenue for universities. Um, They're young, so their decision-making is going to be very different than if I'm a professional athlete at 26. And so much of that just feels to me to be just an economic play for the colleges to get these people back. So it's the colleges that really bother me and where I think to myself, what are we doing? Pro athletes, I feel like, are adults and can make their decision so that's so i'm with you on a lot i'm I'm pretty much with you with the exception of i do make my delineation when it comes to college and college football in particular which i really struggle sort of wondering why on earth are we sending these kids back into that understanding that the rate of infection for them is much lower than uh, other age groups yeah it's fascinating because um I have been, I, I do a show on Sirius XM, the Big 12 today. And so all every single day through the pandemic, I've been doing this show. And so I've been talking, I would say I've talked to 30 kids, 30 college football players throughout this pandemic. And Richard, every single kid wants to play and is begging to get back. They're the ones who are begging to get back on campus to work out and And they're the ones who their life and their identity and what they care about, they want to play. And so it's very, I I do 
fully respect and, and agree with a lot of what you said is we should not make these kids play if they don't want to. But the kids are driving this in a lot of places. You know what I'm, you know, it's not just the economics or it's not just, I'll give you Kansas State, for example, Skylar Thompson, the quarterback there. You know, he's like driving around and trying to get guys to work out with and, and driving for hours to find guys that he can throw to because they love it. Nobody's, you know, making them do this. So it's, it's really interesting conversation. But I don't want kids or I don't want people to forget these kids love it. And if they don't want to play, they don't have to. If they don't want to report, they don't have to. It's all voluntary. So, um, yeah, it is a very fascinating discussion of what is important in our country. Like, what is important? But I think people have to make that individual decision for themselves. Um, I'll, I'll point to another kid, Amari Rogers at Clemson. He's a wide receiver that could have a monster year this year. And um, he came back in five and a half months from an ACL tear last year, last spring to play in college football last fall. And he has been out working out every single day through this pandemic. You know, I watch his Insta story and I'm like, these kids want to play. This is what they care about. And that makes them happy. So they should be able to do it. I appreciate that perspective. Uh, you know, I, I, and I respect that. And I certainly understand how those kids feel. Um, uh, you know, we could probably have a five hour you know, conversation or show on yeah. that, but, um, <laughs> but it's it's it is worth hearing, obviously from from the athletes themselves for sure. The last sort of topic I want to hit on with you is social activism in the WNBA, and as you know, given that you have covered this league, you know essentially from the beginning, and you've sort of thrown your heart and soul, and it's a massive passion of yours. WNBA players, of course, were were on the front lines of this, way, way ahead of the curve. Um, they've been talking about this stuff for years, um, as it really now has hit, obviously, into the public uh, consciousness. Um, it's very clear that this is an important issue when it comes to systemic racism and other stuff for the players in this league. And league partners, ESPN and CBS, have said that um, they're going to show this. They're, they're going to document um, – this stuff when it comes to studio coverage and game coverage from your perspective as a reporter um how much of this do you expect um uh to be reporting on and 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 part of we've already seen holly the last uh you know the last week in the nba i mean almost every one of these zoom conferences you know players have talked about um people of color who are murdered players have talked about things when it comes to social injustice it's essentially in every media conference in the NBA. And I wonder from your perspective, what do you expect in the WNBA this year? Well, first and foremost, I think it's fascinating evolution. So, you know, to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but my first memory is when the Minnesota Lynx with Maya Moore, Lindsay Whalen, Rebecca Brunson, and Simone Augustus stood up in their press conference after a killing in Minneapolis, a police killing a black man in Minneapolis. And, it's gone from a player-driven mo- moment where players did that and the players knelt for the national anthem and players wore T-shirts that say, I can't breathe. And, and initially they got fined until the WNBA reversed their position on that because it was not authorized. And so I think it's gone from being a player-led movement in the WNBA where they have been out front and had great courage speaking out to now the teams are adopting it. Like every single team is doing some type of a social justice initiative. Um, the LA Sparks change has no off season program. Um, the Chicago sky, they have an entire funding thing that every 
every point they make, I think they're spending $10 every win $100 to a local charity in Chicago. Um, so every so now it's gone from player driven to team driven to now the WNBA is dedicating the first two days of the WNBA season this year to the Black Lives Matter movement and Black Lives Matter will be on the court. To be clear, that was Brianna Stewart's idea. The NBA stole that idea. Brianna Stewart's the one that came out with that idea. So the the league is doing that. They are going to have the name of Brianna Taylor on their jerseys. So Angel McCautry, who played at Louisville, I know you know her game, big star at Louisville for many years. She has been out front in this fight for justice for this young 26-year-old um, emergency technician, Brianna Taylor, who was um, killed in her bed by police in Louisville. And so you will see the player's name on their jersey and then Brianna Taylor's name right below it with their campaign that say her name. Because, you know, we saw nationwide protests and all of these things about George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, but the black women are often the forgotten part of this story of the black women who are killed by police. So um, I do think we're, we are definitely going to cover it because it is front and center. It is team, league, player-driven, so we will definitely cover that. I think it's important to cover it without commenting, I, I would say. You know, like I have my own personal beliefs, and, and there are things that I wish I could get more involved in and be yelling from the mountaintops. But, you know, ESPN wants us to be non-political, and I agree with that and, and will abide by that. But I will cover what I'm seeing and what they're saying to me. I think that's important to to um, let these voices of these women be amplified. Holly Rowe is inside the bubble, or the wobble, as they're calling it, for the WNBA in uh, Bradenton, about to embark on one of the most uh, uh, fascinating reporting assignments that's uh, out there. You know, Holly, we didn't even get into the league. I really just want to talk about the bubble, but like, I cannot tell you how... Uh, how many like fascinating storylines there are, you know, whether it's players moving from, t- you know, Tina Charles on a new team, Scarlett Dick and Smith at a new team, uh, um, it, you know, it's uh, Simone Augustus on a new team, all the uh, uh, the great influx of uh, young players like Sabrina Ionescu and, and Satu Sabli coming into the league, not to mention the return of Tarazi and Bird back from injury and Stewart back from injury and Griner. I mean, the, the, the potential for if we were living in a non-COVID universe, this is by far and away the most anticipated WNBA season ever. I think it will still be awesome, but again, in, a, in an alternative reality, the best storylines ever coming into the league, in my opinion. I agree completely because... The largest, like not just the largest free agent movement in history, but the largest all-star, like all-stars changing teams. You know, Angel McCautry going from Atlanta, where she's played her whole career, to Las Vegas. Uh, Dewana Bonner, who's played in Phoenix her whole career, going to Connecticut. So big-time names moving teams. Simone Augustus going from Minnesota to L.A. But then you have the return of the GOATs. Like, these are some of the greatest players that have ever played are coming back from injury. Then you add into that, I think this might be the best rookie class we've ever seen in the WNBA since the Elena Deladon, Brittany Griner, Skylar Diggins-Smith year. So, you know, you just have a confluence of events. Um, Could the play be a little bumpy to start the season? Sure. You know, players haven't played basketball for four months. This is the longest layoff any of these people have ever had. So I I hope that, you know, people can kind of 
get get into it and, and do well, um, I'm a little worried about, you know, just conditioning and stuff like that because they've only had a two-week training camp. But I do think it has the potential to be one of the most wonderful seasons we've ever seen because think about this, Richard. This is another side effect of the pandemic. Because players are all in one location, there's no travel. You know, you've heard of travel horrors with the WNBA and, you know, having to fly overnight on back-to-back games and being in coach at 6-5 or whatever. So they get to play a game. They take a short trolley ride back to their room and start recovering with their game ready or their Norma Tech boots and doing all their recovery. And they, so no travel. I think that really sets up for some good play because the rest and recovery piece um, is much easier. All right, Holly Rowe, of course, I gave her a resume at the, at the beginning. Uh, it's long, it's impressive, and uh, basically among the most popular people in the sports media. And uh, ask any of her colleagues at ESPN, they all love her, which is an incredible thing, Holly, in sports broadcasting. Almost uh, one of the rarest things of all time, but you figure out how to pull that off. Holly, I wish you nothing but uh, uh, safety and health down there. Um, I'll be watching the games from... Uh, Toronto, I'm very excited about this assignment for you. I know you'll you'll be awesome at it. And uh, and thanks so much today for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. It's my privilege. And thank you for your continued, passionate, wonderful coverage of women's basketball. I love you so much for that. You have been day one, a real one. And I appreciate you because you don't just do a lip service. You care about these women. And that makes it's just so great. I'm so grateful. And it's nice of you to say I do love the game and have been, been covering it uh, it feels like since I was like five years old, but but two, since 2000 at Sports Illustrated. Uh, Holly Rowe. Thank you, Holly Rowe. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. As I said at the top, Tanya Ganguly is a Lakers beat writer. For the LA Times, uh, yeah, covering obviously one of the signature teams in the league. Prior to this, if you're a football fan, you've probably read her work either at ESPN, the Houston Chronicle, or the Florida Times Union. Um, she's been freed from football, but now back <laughs> in captivity in the NBA bubble in Orlando. And uh, I'm pleased uh, that she joins me for a couple minutes because obviously this is a really fascinating topic for people who are sports media geeks. Tanya, first off, um, how are you? And uh, you're, you're, are you healthy? And, 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 you know, walking around, you're seeing sunlight now that you're out of your room, I've, I, I believe. I am, yeah. The uh, well, right now I'm in my room, but you know, the I do get to go outside, which is a big improvement from last week. So um, it's been it's been nice to be able to. We, we're very, very, very limited in where we can go. Like there's security quite often telling me you can't come here. Um, so I, it's it's not like I'm able to roam free exactly, but I am able to at least be in the sun sometimes, which is nice. Yeah. So, okay. So let's start here. How did you get the assignment and did you volunteer for the assignment? Well, uh, you know, we, the Lakers are our priority at the paper. I mean, the Lakers and the Dodgers are our two top teams. And so we knew it was important to have 
um, a Lakers to have you know somebody who's very familiar with the team and and who the players know and who can you know cover the Lakers end of this um, for at least part of the the bubble. I mean, I think our plan is to switch out midway. Um, we're going to have uh, one of my colleagues come in in September, and I really felt like. I, I really felt like I wanted to be here at the beginning because right now is when there's this novelty about it. Um, also, who knows if it's going to make it to the end. <laughs> that was also a consideration of mine. But I hadn't seen the Lakers in four months. Um, you know, I felt like this was an important time to be covering what they're gearing up to do. And um, also there were a lot of, you know, I wanted to cover how the players would be handling the social justice aspect of this, like they have talked about wanting to use this, their platform right now to do that. Um, I was curious to find out what that would look like. So that was also part of it. Can you describe for um, my listeners just the sort of the logistics of leaving Los Angeles, um, getting to Orlando, and then what your first week was like um, inside this uh, unprecedented assignment? Uh, well, we were so basically I I knew that we were probably going to get a spot, but the L.A. Times was certainly not guaranteed a spot in the bubble. Um, initially, we thought ESPN would be counting against the total of 10 reporters and Turner would be counting against that. And so we wondered how many people they're going to get. Um, so there was a little bit of uncertainty. It turns out what they ended up doing was they've limited they've limited the number to 10 independent reporters. So ESPN has a couple, ESPN has three people here and Turner has uh, several people. I mean, ESPN also has some producers and Turner has several people here and uh, including producers. Um, and so those don't count against the total. So, so once we found out that for sure we were in, um, it was about a week before we needed to leave, which meant that I, I then had to immediately um, self-quarantine for seven days because they, that's what they required of, of us. And they basically told us right when that period would start. So, so I was, I, I had to immediately just like drop everything and not go anywhere. Um, my biggest regret is that the nail salons had just started to open in LA and I couldn't go because I, I, just, <laughs> I couldn't go. So my nails look terrible right now. We also don't have access to the nail salons on campus yet. So maybe that'll happen soon. But anyway, so once I, uh, the, on July 12th is when I flew here. I took a red eye actually from LA through Minneapolis. Um, my flight from Minneapolis had two other bubble people on it, a referee and an ESPN producer. And we uh, were put in a van that had an NBA logo on it. They drove us to uh, this one lobby um, of the convention center. Um, some, uh, a police dog sniffed our bags. I think he was looking for bombs, maybe. Um, and then we waited about an hour before our keys were ready, and then they sent us to our rooms where we were just in, which we were just in for seven full days. Have you been told at this point what kind of access you will have for first the um, sort of the exhibition um, week that they're going to have, and then after that, the actual games? Yeah, we will be able to go to the scrimmages um, and, and the, uh, the, pre- the preliminary games also. Um, there's seating in the corner of the arena. 
um, that's like close to the court. It is better than most. It's better than most arenas. Most arenas have kicked media upstairs to at least the 200 level. Um, Staples Center, I don't know how this has continued to persist, but I'm very happy it has. Staples Center um, has really great seats. So these seats are a little bit, the, the Staples Center seats are a little bit better than this, but it, they're, they're good seats. So we'll be sitting in this corner um, close to the court, and then everything post-game is through Zoom. I mean, it's the same that everybody else is doing. We can't go down. I don't, I don't believe we can go down and, like, actually be in the Zoom room like we are after practices. I believe it's that we just have to log into Zoom and participate in the interview just like anyone back in L.A. One of the, um, you know, one of the things, and uh, there's been a lot of stories I've written about this lately, uh, you know, that the act of sort of siding up to players, which is um, – you know, what NBA reporters do, you know, like sort of just different times after practice, or maybe you see somebody around arena, you're able to get, you know, a quick one-on-one where a lot of stories and sourcing can come about. Um, This uh, bubble, Tanya, obviously there's, um, there's the real sort of social distancing impact. There's probably protocol that says, you know, the media should not be talking to players in certain positions. Like, how do you is there a way to get around that? Like, you know, like one of the one of the real beauties of the NBA is the access that the NBA has, where you could sort of get players or coaches or or uh, front office people in different situations at the arena. But like, it doesn't seem like you could do this here. So how do you? How for you can you work around that, or can you work around that? I I think that it right like right now is when your relationships are the most important because. What I've seen happening in these first, like, two days that I've been on the outside is that um, you'll have some times when players or coaches will come up to a reporter and say, hey, how's it going? Um, They have strictly forbidden reporters from approaching players and coaches, which I've actually seen them try to enforce that here. Like, if, if if a reporter, you know, walks toward a coach, like, they get scolded for that. Um... But, but they, but you can, I mean, there have been, I mean, for me, like there have been times when I've seen somebody I know and we'll wave across, like, you know, we'll wave to each other or he'll come over and say hello or later he'll text and be like, Hey, just saw you there. Congrats on making it out. Something like that. You know, so there, there is a way to, um, there is a way to connect. And I think it does help for people to see you there and to see that you're experiencing this also, but um, it is harder because um, you can't, you know, like there were so many times when I could, like me or one of the other beat writers could walk with LeBron or go up to approach him after he's done a post-game interview and say, I had one more thing, can I ask you? And he usually, well, if he had time, he would usually say yes. Um, if he had time and he knows you, he would usually say yes. That kind of interaction isn't there here because, you know, it's just not the same setting. Like he does his interview after a practice and then he has to leave to go to the hotel so that he can get out of his uh, practice clothes, you know? So um, you do lose a lot of that. Tanya, I realize you're not an epidemiologist, but I, I uh, you know, I'm fortunate to talk to somebody who's actually inside the bubble right now. If you had to guess, do you think it's going to, you think the bubble will quote unquote hold? Do you think that, do you think that the NBA is poised to, to get through, um, to get through this quick regular season, and then obviously the the playoffs. 
Um, I think that, I don't know. I think I'm right now, as things are going, it seems like, yes. Um, I think the big challenge will be once, uh, families arrive. So once like player guests are arriving, then it's like you have a whole, you have a, you have a whole other group of people that's not as controlled as this group of people. So what's that going to look like? Um, so I think that's, that's when we'll really run into, I don't think they're going to have any problems until then. Because there is a big group of people right now that the players are interacting with who aren't secluded in the bubble, and that's the people who work at Disney World and also the people who work for BioReference and test us. They don't live on campus. So those, there is some risk with that, but those people have a lot of PPE on. They've got shields. I mean, their PPE is probably better than a lot of people who work in hospitals, honestly, which is a whole other thing to discuss. But um but there, I don't think the risk is that high with them. Um, but I do think, like, once, you know, if they, if they end up doing that, once they start allowing guests to come in, you might, that might be a concern. I have two more for you. Um, one is just for you in the LeBron era, um, how, how interesting has it been uh, since he arrived? And does – has his arrival changed for? Let me. I'll ask it a better way. It's a better question. How has LeBron and maybe Anthony Davis as well? But how have the Lakers becoming a real factor in the league over the last eighteen, twenty months? How has that changed your job? It's it's made it's made people uh, nationally a lot more interested in what I have to say. I guess. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have. I, I have. A lot more help on the beat now. Um, we've prioritized it a lot more than when they were missing the playoffs. And but you know the thing is, like in LA, the Lakers were still there was still a ton of interest, and the Lakers would have some big drama every year that I covered them. So there was, I feel like there was always something. Like I feel like I like there was always something that was keeping the Lakers very very relevant. Um, you know, I guess the biggest change to my job is now I cover LeBron James. And that's a very different thing than covering most professional athletes. Um, so that's, that's been something that's been really interesting to do and to see what that's like. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I always tell people, like, I was really surprised when I started covering this team. Even though I grew up in L.A., I was really surprised to find out that even when the Lakers were terrible, when they were winning, they had just come off a 17-win season in my first year covering this team. Like, the fans were there, and very into it um i think laker fans get i think laker fans get mischaracterized a little bit by people around the country like they were they were pretty passionate about about anytime they saw any sign of hope um in their team so obviously that's hit a different level and there's there's a lot more attention in certain ways but um but it's always been a beat that's it's always been a beat where things are happening that that are that draw a lot of attention all right, and the last one for me, Tanya, um, and this is just, I think, just fascinating, is one of the major storylines, of course, of the NBA's return is going to be social activism and players speaking about systemic racism, police brutality, and other, um, other issues that are important to them. Uh, from your perspective, how do you navigate stories on social activism with game coverage? How, what, what is your blueprint, at least in your mind, in terms of how, um, how to approach two things, both um, uniquely different, but both obviously having 
um, audiences of great interest for them. And perhaps even certain times one audience doesn't want this one audience doesn't want that, but that's a really interesting situation for a reporter to be in. And quite frankly, you could have multiple reporters covering the, you know what I mean? The, the Lakers inside the bubble, cause you'd have multiple subject matters to tackle except you are the person who's going to cover it all. So how do you navigate this? Yeah, it's it's tough because we don't typically get in so far in these Zoom calls, everybody gets one question. So then you have to decide, like, what's the one thing I'm going to ask about today? Um, on uh, Monday, I decided that the one thing I was going to ask LeBron about was John Lewis. But there were plenty of other things that I needed. Um, and, you know, I've... I've, there have been plenty of other interviews where I haven't asked a question like that. Um, so it, it, that makes it really hard if you're somebody that wants to hit both angles. Um, I was hoping that the I was hoping that there would be some kind of um, separate media availability time where players could where, where we could like you know where we could ask the social justice questions versus the game and practice questions because now what might start happening is a lot of teams have started to go away from practicing on nine game days and even having shoot arounds. The Lakers did very little of that at like right before the break was happening because they were on maybe not being on the road will change this, but they were on the road so much and they just wanted everybody to be resting their bodies. Um, So what if they, what if the only time we're having access to them is post game, then do you, you know, you, had he, it becomes even more complicated. So, you know, I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, but uh, hopefully I'll, hopefully I will. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to do a good job of covering both. Yeah, I'm sure you will. It's a really interesting reporting assignment. Um, Tanya Ganguly, uh, as I mentioned at the top, is the Lakers beat writer for the Los Angeles Times. Um, she, uh, in her previous life, um, was a football writer covering the NFL. Uh, if you are a, um, a fan of the Lakers or uh, just a fan of the NBA, you should probably be following her on Twitter just because she's covering one of the mega teams in the sport. Her handle is at T-A-N-I-A-G-A-N-G-U-L-I at Tanya Ganguly. Tanya, I know um, your time is busy down there, so I really appreciate you giving me a little bit of time. Stay safe and... Um, and keep up the great work. Thanks uh, so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? Will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, Stefano Fusaro is a national correspondent for ESPN who is currently reporting from inside the MLS bubble in Orlando. His, uh, you know, non-surreal job is a, <laughs> he's based in Houston as a reporter, uh, a bilingual multimedia specialist. So like our guest last week, Marley Rivera, that's pretty much a killer app to have when it comes to professional sports. Someone who's bilingual can do interviews in both Spanish and English. Uh, something that I bang myself on the head every day that I'm not more fluent in. And he is the lone ESPN reporter 
in the MLS bubble during their six-week return to play. And Stefano Fasaro joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, all right, well, first off, how are you holding up? You're, 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 you're free. I know you're outside, so unlike some other quarantine people, you see sunshine and, and stuff like that, so that's good news. Yeah, I mean, we, we at least get to see the sun. <laughs> we at least get to... Uh leave the bubble only to go towards to the ESPN wide world of sports where they're playing the games and, and doing training and stuff like that. Uh, so that part's good. We did have a quarantine when we first arrived uh, for 24 hours and we had to get tested before arriving and as we arrived as well. Uh, but yeah, we've, we've been out of quarantine and working hard. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting situation for sure to be locked up, uh, to be locked up, not being able to leave the resort grounds, but, as uh, we heard Stephen Adams say from the NBA bubble, man, it could be a lot worse. So we have to kind of look at it that way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's one of the quotes of the uh, quarantine so far in sports. All right, let me. I want to ask you uh, what I've asked Holly Rowe, your colleague from ESPN, and Tanya Ganguly as well. And that is, um, how did you get the assignment, and did you volunteer for the assignment? I don't only uh, report for Sports Center on on multiple sports, but I, I, I've been embedded with the MLS now for two years as the uh, second sideline reporter for ESPN. Uh, Sebastian Salazar is, is the lead sideline reporter for ESPN on MLS. Uh, he chose not to go, uh, to come to the bubble. And uh, we had had discussions about both of us going uh, with my bosses and with some other people involved with MLS. Uh, but when he decided not to go, uh, the gig was mine. And look, it was a, a definitely a difficult decision. Uh, I have a, a wife and a very young uh, six-month-old baby girl. So it was a tough decision to go through and to talk to my wife and understand what this would mean uh, to be here for six weeks total. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, look, it, it was, it was never, I was never pressured into the assignment by, at all. Uh, I did express um, interest in it just because I knew it was a great opportunity uh, and to really even embed myself even further uh, with the MLS. Uh, but, yeah, it was definitely a, a difficult decision to make. But at the same time, the players here had a difficult decision to make. If they wanted to come in, you're seeing, I mean, you saw the biggest star in the league, the MVP, Carlos Vela, decide not to uh, because he has a wife who's pregnant and another small child. So while it was an extremely difficult decision to make, uh, I thought it was a a positive for my career moving forward, and and that's why I decided to come. Can you give my listeners a sense of, um, uh, like, the the, the first week, basically, leaving Houston, um, getting to the bubble, in Orlando, and then what you had to do regarding quarantining and, and medical protocol? So before uh, we, I even left Houston, uh, we had to do two COVID, what they call spit tests. Uh, so it's not the, na- the nasal swab. So I had to do both of those COVID spit tests uh, with a medical professional from the company that is uh, performing the tests here inside the bubble uh, with a, a medical professional on Zoom. So I had to do the spit test while being watched uh, by a medical professional from Zoom. I had to do that first. And then the day of the flight, it was, <laughs> I've never seen an airport that empty. I fly out of Houston all the time with my job. And it was uh, pretty eerie <laughs> to see the airport the way it was. My flight was pretty empty as well. Uh, obviously, masks on, gloves on to, go, to get onto the plane. And uh, once we arrived here, we're not, we're not allowed uh, here in Orlando, not allowed to rent a car. It was a shuttle that was waiting for myself and uh, other ESPN uh, people that are here with me and my crew, my producer and my cameraman. And uh, they took us over straight to the resort, uh, the Swan and Dolphin Resort. 
soon as we arrived, uh, check in, go put your bags upstairs, immediately go get tested, uh, a nasal swab test. Uh, and after that, a 24-hour quarantine uh, until those test results come back. So I was stuck in my room, and, that's, and, and that is where you get the famous meals and box lunches that were out there and went viral. But that's all, those meals are only during the uh, quarantine period. After that, we have a lot more options. Um, and then since then, it's been a COVID nasal swab test every other day and temperature checks every day as we enter uh, the wide world of sports or here in the hotel if we don't have to go to the wide world of sports uh, that specific day. What kind of access do you have, uh, both uh, uh, between games and then in-game? So it is, uh, it is a little difficult. that We do have, obviously, more access than anyone else just because we are here and we are able to go directly through teams to do interviews uh, in specific, specified locations all around the bubble and around the hotel grounds. Uh, so we do have the access, but at the same time, you know, the MLS really asks us to respect the players and and the staff while we're walking around the hotel. I mean, we're all under the same roof here, uh, essentially, in, in this resort. So we're constantly walking by players, and now there is no issue. If I know a player, I can, you know, just pull them aside and have a casual conversation. There's no issue there. But as far as doing interviews and informal interviews, uh, we have the access, but we still need to go through team PRs and through this, the same kind of things that we would do on a normal basis uh, to get an interview, to lock down an interview. So the access is good for us, but at the same time, there is some, some respect being paid to, to their space because we're all living in the same roof. Are there, um, you know, I, we've certainly heard and read a lot about the number of NBA reporters that are inside the bubble. Not as much for MLS. Uh, how many, are there other reporters who are in the bubble, whether uh, print reporters or, or digital? There is one other uh, television crew from uh, Univision, who is the other rights holder uh, of MLS, along with Fox. Fox does not have anyone here. Uh, and there are three print reporters as well. And that is it. <laughs> there is no one else as far as media is concerned. Now, there is some local media from specific markets that are here, but they're not inside the bubble. So we are tier two, that we're inside the bubble. Uh, tier three and four are other media members that are allowed onto the wide world of sports ground, still very, very far away from the players. They're not allowed into the media hub for post-game press conferences. They need to do that via Zoom like everybody else that isn't here. Uh, so there are some media, like I said, in that tier three, tier four, but they're not allowed into the bubble, into the uh, resort grounds, uh, only at the wide world of sports where the games are being played. One of the things that I, th- <clears throat> that I think is um, is really interesting, a little bit sobering, too, would be for the reporters who opted to go inside the bubble, uh, you know, regardless of the sport. Uh, you mentioned that you had um, some conversations with your wife, and obviously um, I imagine anybody who has a partner had to go through those conversations. But did you end up talking to your doctor at all? And did you did you look into the medical part, not just the potential, let's say, to, um, to get COVID-19, but just the, you know, this is an abnormal situation, you know, sort of, for your mental health and not to mention your physical health. And I'm wondering if prior to going down there, did you talk to your own GP and what did your doctor say? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did speak to him and I, and I'll be honest, <laughs> if, if I didn't have a daughter, I probably wouldn't have uh, just whether that's probably not smart of me anyway, but I probably wouldn't have, but because I have a, a six month old daughter and every decision I make now also affects, could also affect her. So I did speak to my doctor, asked him more about, 
the the thought of when I do return home at the end of this tournament, uh, should I quarantine? Should I stay away? Should I get another test? Uh, and, and his answers, his answers were not extremely convincing, just because I think that there's not a there's not a lot of knowledge on this. But he did say you should stay safe and and at least quarantine until you're able to get another rapid test when you arrive home. So. Uh, I think that's what we're going to do. It's going to be extremely difficult after not seeing my daughter for six uh, for six weeks to not just grab her and hug her and kiss her. But uh, but it's, we're going to have to do that, and, and that's what I need to do to stay safe, right? And as far from a mental health perspective, look, we didn't I didn't have that conversation, uh, but I can tell you that it's that it, there is concerns, right? I mean, there is a concern. I'm here working so much, and I think that that's a good thing uh, as far as mental health is concerned is concerned, but. At the same time, I you know once talk to me when we get to week five and uh, see how I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What um what a, a, you know again, every player is going to have their own unique experience, but um sort of in general, what have the players told you so far about the experience for them and um and testing for them, quality of games for them? What are they? What are the, what's sort of the general um uh, outlook for them right now regarding this back to uh, this this tournament? Yeah, I think it's really kind of gone up and down, uh, Richard. It's when, when we first got here, and there wasn't a lot of teams, and we obviously had these, the issues with FC Dallas and Nashville SC and their teams with having a, a multitude of positive tests. And I think that when that was going on, that they were eventually withdrawn from the tournament because of it, you had a lot of players very uneasy. You didn't see a lot of guys walking around the hotel. You had teams canceling uh, their golfing outings that – uh, they were allowed to do in a fishing outing that they were allowed to do uh, just because of the uncertainty and not knowing what was going to happen. And at that point, you know, there was, they were floating the idea of maybe even uh, postponing the tournament or pushing it back. Uh, the league felt comfortable with their protocols following those positive tests and being able to contain them to that specific team. And I think that once they saw that the cases have not been spreading, uh, we are on our fourth consecutive report now with zero new positive cases inside the bubble. Now you're starting to see guys a little more loose, a little understanding that they need to follow protocols, that it's not a joke, that it's not, you know, that they have to continue to follow the rules if they want to get on the field and play and they don't want to damage their team's chances of being not only winning, but being in the tournament. But you are seeing a little bit less anxiety from guys and a little more just understanding that this is our situation, this is where we have to live, we just got to be careful, but that doesn't mean that we can't be around and try to enjoy ourselves as much as possible. So you have some guys a little more at the pool now. Uh, there's games set up, uh, outdoor games set up all around the property, so you're seeing them out a little bit more and really starting to just understand and accept that this is the life we have for right now and we have to make the best of it. How have you found the sort of the, um, the specific elements of your job? Um from uh, taping reports uh, for like the Sports Center type to doing uh, interviews with whatever ESPN outlet needs you to game broadcasts, um, you know, again, you're um, you're you're a singular reporter <laughs> for a massive, massive entity that's on site. So that leads to a lot of responsibility and a lot of different kinds of responsibility. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I could easily say that this has been the since I've been at ESPN. Uh, this is going on my fourth year. Um, this has definitely been the busiest I've ever been over this period of time. Um, just because, like you said, we're, we're, I'm the only reporter here, and we're getting requests 
especially in that first week when we had all of the uh, positive coronavirus t- uh, cases. Um, yeah, it was difficult to juggle, you know, the request of Sports Center, the request of ESPN FC, uh, the request of uh, even earlier, just earlier today, right after our 9 a.m. game uh, on Wednesday morning, we uh, we had to re- record a 45 second promo for the halftime of the Serie A game that's on our air uh, a little later today, previewing the games for tonight. And, and then you obviously have the ESPN Deportes request because I'm doing stuff for them in Spanish as well. Which look, it's it's a great opportunity and it's a lot. It's great exposure for me, but at the same time, it's been hard to juggle all that. Plus, having to get prepped for the broadcasts and to do sidelines for those broadcasts, also doing pregame interviews, halftime interviews, and postgame interviews, not only for ESPN but also for the World Feed. So it has been a lot to juggle. Uh, but look, I came here to work, right? And, and the way I looked at it is, we didn't work a whole lot for about four months during this whole during this whole pandemic and and sports being you know, being gone for so long that I said, this is an opportunity to, to work, to work hard, and I knew what I was getting myself into. Maybe maybe wasn't as sure about what I was getting myself into once I finally got here, but it was. Uh, but I knew it was going to be this way, and uh, that's, that's what we're doing. Do you have the broadcast in your ear uh, in some kind of IF? Uh, yeah, okay. So you can, so you, regardless of, uh, regarding who the broadcasters are, you're hearing them, and then if somebody wants to go to you, it's a producer who cues you to say we're coming to you? Is that sort of how it works? Yeah. Yeah, usually. So I have return on my mic, so I can talk directly to the producer and, and not on the broadcast. So, I mean, a perfect example is, uh, is today. We had uh, our, our, excuse me, on Wednesday. We had RSL, Real Salt Lake, uh, <clears throat> playing Sporting Kansas City. Real Salt Lake's one of their best players, Albert Ruznak, hurt his hip in the, in the previous game. Uh, he wasn't playing today. But at halftime, I just he, I saw him sitting on the bench, and I walked over to him and, and asked him a couple questions about his hip and uh, immediately went over uh, right before the second half started and told my producer, hey, I just spoke to Ruznak. He told me X, Y, and Z. Let's try to get that in. And he said, oh, I like that. Okay, let's go for it. And uh, once the second half started, uh, I'm hearing John Champion and Taylor Coleman in my ear, uh, and, they, and they tossed to me, and I was able to give my report. And that's how the, that process works. Uh, now, obviously, there's injuries and different things. I need to be away from my position while I get that information. I tell the producer, hey, I'm not on headset for a second. I need to have a conversation. And that's how that, that whole process works. One of the uh, Here's the sort of the last place I want to go with you. And this is an issue, obviously, for every sport um, that's coming back now. But social activism is going to be a significant part of all the sports that – are coming back. It's already been the case, obviously, in MLS. We see prior to games, um, people kneeling. We see people um, uh, expressing their support for Black Lives Matter. We've seen players talking about uh, systemic racism, police brutality. So you being there, and this is, again, something I talked to Holly Rowe and Tiny Ganguly about, you have to juggle the one sort of mega story, of course, which is like the sport is back and here are these games, and what does it all mean within a COVID-19 universe? And then there's this secondary massive story as well, and that's sort of uh, player activism, um, you know, uh, uh, professional athletes sort of speaking their truths, this sort of uh, place that we have not been, at least in professional athletes, uh, athletics in in my lifetime, uh, at least this public. And so you, as the reporter on the ground, have to sort of navigate these two worlds. I wonder for you... um, how have you done that? And just sort of what's your thought process on, on the one hand, you cover the sport, 
So you have to sort of cover the results and injuries and and the COVID-19 stuff. At the same time, there's this whole other element that um, now exists in, in, in 2020, and that's player activism. Yeah, it was definitely tough, especially the first week, Richard, like having to juggle all of the COVID news as well as the MLS has done a fantastic job um, with all of their different uh, causes for so- and, and different things that they've done and demonstrations that they've done for social activism. I mean, there is not one game where the players aren't warming up in Black Lives Matter t-shirts. Uh, the captain's armbands for every team have an individualized uh, message specific to each market um, in support of Black Lives Matter. And it has been tough to kind of juggle a little bit of everything. Now, the good thing is because we've had so many platforms and, and, and different, you know, because we've gone on so many of ESPN's platforms, um, we have been able to, hey, we have this, you know, sports center. We have this about social activism. We think that this is a really good story or a very good question for you guys to ask me about. Um, and we really have had those conversations with different shows, what they're expecting and what they want. We come with the, with all the news and all of the um, we come to them with all the news and with everything that we've, you know, been able to find out as far as social activism is concerned, as far as COVID is concerned and about everything. Um, but at the same time, it's their call of where they want to go with it. So, yeah, we've had to juggle it. But at the same time, there's so many different platforms that we've had that we've done different stories on different platforms and it's all depending on what they want. The, uh, so here's the last thing, um, that I, uh, I want to ask you about, and that's, um, and that's the sort of the, the MLS, uh, writ large. Um, the play I think has been, you know, I, I say this as a soccer fan, not a hardcore soccer fan, but certainly a significant soccer fan. Like I've enjoyed it. I think the play has been better than I expected. The games have been incredibly fun to watch. We're now heading to the round of 16 as I tape this with you at the same time, like these other sports, these mega sports, MLB, uh, NBA, NHL, and then in the distance, the NFL, they're all coming back. And I wonder for you, and again, you have to do your job on a daily basis, so you can't really think about that. But is there, do you, do you think there's concern for the league that in the next couple of weeks, they're going to get a little bit lost because you have these mega sports now that are all coming back in this really crazy accelerated period? Yeah, I think there's no doubt. I mean, uh, look, I, I'm an NBA fan just like anybody else, and I'm extremely excited to get those games back underway. Uh, I think that MLS really wanted to take advantage and be the first male sport back uh, just because they would have they had this time to really uh, shine and show their product. And, and yeah, but like you were saying, I mean, by all, by all accounts, it's been a fun tournament. Uh, sure, there have been some games that aren't as great, and, and when you're watching every single game, sometimes some of them look you know, a lot worse than others. But overall, there's been drama, late goals. There's been uh, high-scoring games, and we're averaging in the night window over three and a half goals a game. Uh, I mean, I think that that's that's a big win for MLS. That's over their regular season average from 2019. So it has been fun. I, I think that they may have captured a lot of the casual fans throughout this. But yeah, it's going to be a challenge with the uh, with with MLB coming back, with the NBA coming back, with the NFL down the road. But then again, we need to ask the question, right? They're not, a lot of these sports, besides the NBA, not going to be in a bubble. Will it work? I don't know. I've seen how things are working in here. And besides that first week, 
everything has gone to plan. And yeah, two teams have to be withdrawn from the tournament, even in a bubble environment. How do we expect these other guys, these other leagues that aren't going to be in a bubble environment, to stay safe if we got so many positive cases inside of a bubble environment, but they were able to get it controlled? That's, I think, the biggest question to ask when it comes to uh, the NFL and MLB. Hmm. <clears throat> Don't sleep on Toronto FC, Stefano. That's my little tip for you. Right <laughs> I got you. I love your boy, Io Akinola. He is, he is lighting the tournament up so far. Five goals in three games. I like him, 20-year-old. As you guys saw, the NBA is setting up a barber shop in their bubble. Well, we're not as lucky here in the MLS bubble. I've been trying to get a haircut for about yeah, a week and a half now. MLS sort of laughed at me when I made that request. So now I'm attempting uh, and hoping that FC Cincinnati maybe makes it through to the next round because I've heard that one of their young players, Frankie Amaya, has been cutting his own teammates' hair. So I think that's the route I'm going to have to go, and uh, hopefully we're able to do that because there's no no barbershop here in the MLS bubble. Yeah, we'll waive the no rooting uh, rule just for this one so you can get a haircut. I, I, I respect that. As we're taping this in real time here, I'll give you this, Stefano, because I know you can appreciate this. So Grant Wall is my uh, was my longtime colleague at Sports Illustrated, just tweets this out regarding just soccer content today. 12.30 p.m., NWSL semifinal, Houston-Portland. 1 p.m., Man U, Manchester United, West Ham. 3.15, Liverpool-Chelsea. 8 p.m., Cincinnati Red Bulls. 10 p.m., NWSL semi-Chicago Sky Blue. 10.30 p.m., MLS, Chicago, Minnesota. Like, literally, if you are a soccer fan right now, in this crazy COVID world we live in, you, you basically just don't have to leave your house. Basically, from 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 noon from noon to noon to midnight, it's unbelievable. It really is. It's beautiful. It, it's absolutely great. I mean, I'll tell you myself. I got a bunch of friends who, who are doing just that today, sitting at home and watching all of this soccer. And uh, from a personal standpoint, I'll be watching that Liverpool game because uh, I'm quite a fan, and we'll be lifting a little thing called the Premier League trophy today. So I'll definitely be tuning in to Liverpool Chelsea at three o'clock today for sure. Yeah, that uh, that is that, that has become a dynasty, uh, the Liverpool squad, uh, for sure. All right, um, Stefano Fusaro is uh, an ESPN national correspondent. He's currently reporting from inside the MLS bubble in Orlando. He's usually based in Houston for ESPN, and uh, he's the lone ESPN reporter in the MLS bubble during this six weeks. And like he said on this podcast, there are not many reporters in addition to him, so an incredibly unique um Experience, and you could also find his work traditionally, um, ESPN, ESPN Deportes, and ESPN FC. Uh, Stefano, stay healthy and safe down there. Um, we'll certainly be watching. It's a really interesting assignment, and uh, and thank you so much for giving me a little bit of time today on the Sports Media Podcast. Absolutely, Richard. Thanks for having me. All right, back uh, to wrap up uh, this podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Those uh, were three excellent guests with like three unique, interesting assignments. Man. Uh, Holly Rowe of ESPN, Tanya Ganguly of the LA Times, and uh, Stefano Fusaro of uh, ESPN. I hope he gets a uh, haircut soon. Totally, totally understand, understand wanting that. Um, before the episode before this, or the last couple episodes before this, had Marley Rivera on um, covering uh, MLB during COVID 19, as well as her really, really good story on um, uh, African American baseball players and uh, what they've had to endure over the MLB. Also, Jim Miller on um, the Adrian Wojnarowski suspension and talent agent Steve Hers on his new book as well as the sports media uh, landscape. Um, head down the sort of the list of uh, 
of podcasts that we've had lately, The Athletics, Rhiannon Walker, um, ESPN's Mike Reese and Josh Tolentino, talking about uh, uh, covering the NFL in a pandemic. Uh, Rhiannon Walker, my very brave and uh, uh, exceptionally talented colleague, wrote a piece about her experience with the Washington football team and sexual harassment while we're checking out on The Athletic. Uh, prior to that, Michael Lee, uh, senior NBA writer for The Athletic, and Robert Klimko, before that, Jay Donde, and then uh, just head down the, uh, the list of uh, people we've had on, Bobby McFarland, Tom Perducci, Bob Costas, uh, some interesting guests during uh, the last couple of months. My thanks to Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry for their uh, work on this podcast. Thanks to everybody Kings 13 from Chris, Cor- Chris Corcoran to Spencer Brown to John McDermott. This is Richard Deitch. We will see you very soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.